Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the AIS podcast special on US-Europe relations. For all our new listeners, this is a seven-episode series on major trends and developments in transatlantic relations, supported by the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, in which high-level US experts provide us with perspectives from their side of the Atlantic. Today, we will talk about the global order and how it is shaped by the strategic triangle of the US, Europe, and China. And I'm delighted to do that with Andrew Michter, the Dean at the College of International and Security Studies at Marshall Center. He holds a PhD in international relations from the John Hopkins University. His areas of expertise are international security, NATO and European politics and security with a special focus on Central Europe and the Baltic states. Andrew, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Valina. Much appreciated. Now, I would like to start with a general question. In your article for the National Review, you argue that the US must prepare for great, power, great powers competition. Once again, to use a quote from this piece, for the first time in its history, the United States is confronting not one, but two military near-peer competitors at a time when America's forces are no longer structured to meet the country's security obligations in both the Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific theaters. How would you describe the current state of the global order and the future great power competition? Thank you. Uh, before I answer your question, let me state that I'm speaking in my private capacity as a scholar and an analyst and my views do not reflect the policy or position of the US Department of Defense, the Marshall Center. Uh, I'm speaking in my own, uh, from my own perspective here, and it should be taken that way. To answer your question, look, we are clearly at an inflection point when it comes to global power distribution. Uh, the post-Cold War era has ended. The post-Cold War era that was defined by a uh, certain degree of liberal hubris that uh, the history has ended, uh, that uh, we were in a unipolar moment of the United States where the United States in effect uh, exercised uh, full hegemony in multiple theaters and could shape that order as we, as we liked. Uh, we also went through these three decades of uh, globalization as the dominant ideology uh, where the belief in export-driven modernization uh, was used to rationalize, in effect, uh, to a large extent, offshoring U.S. and to a growing, uh, to, to a growing extent, European industries as well, uh, to China predominantly to take advantage of labor arbitrage uh, and to produce for the global market. Uh, we've gone through this period largely uh, not paying attention to the power dynamics per se, but looking more at institutions that we were talking about, uh, institution building, na nation building, democracy building. And that process accelerated for the US in particular after the 9-11 attacks, uh, where we believe that we needed to have some systemic transformative solutions. Those assumptions have done two things. Uh, they have significantly, uh, I would argue, depleted American power. We've been at the, for about two decades now. Uh, in essentially incessant warfare in, in uh, secondary theaters, 
with really strategic non-outcomes. If you look at uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan right now, uh, we not even had 20 years of war in Afghanistan. We had 21-year campaigns in Afghanistan, I would argue, um, because of how we rotated the leadership and the forces in place. Um, we have also realized that while we were, uh, you know, borrowing uh, money and, and uh, uh, depleting our resources to some extent, the Chinese grow exponentially, you know, in, in 30 years, about 900% increase in GDP. That is phenomenal. Uh, sometimes, ironically, I say um, uh, the only successful nation building project we have launched over those, those last 30 years was to build the Chinese economy. Uh, on the Russian side, uh, the Russians have clearly departed from, uh, from uh, uh, any sort of idea of, of liberal transformation that happened already in the first post-Cold War decade. But under Putin, uh, Russia has consolidated and selectively modernized its military power. Uh, if you counter that against uh, uh, what the European allies have done, uh, which has in effect disarmed themselves over the last 30 years when it comes to real exercise capabilities, the balance of power due, due to that selective uh, uh, rearmament on the Russian side uh, has shifted uh, uh, significantly in favor of Russia and the European theater. Uh, Russia is not in the same category as China is. Russia is a revisionist power. I would argue Russia tries to revise the post-Cold War settlement. Uh, uh, China wants to replace the entire order with an order that's built around its own uh, priorities, values, supply chains, uh, uh, communication networks. That's the Belt and Road Initiative. That's the 17 plus one. That's the Chinese punching into the Arctic. In a sense, the United States today, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude my answer on this, unlike in the Cold War, where we confronted just one near peer competitor, which was the Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc. China was a regional player. And after Nixon pulled it out of uh, of the Russian orbit, uh, it essentially was used to some extent offset, offset the Soviets. We now have two military near-peer com competitors in large part because of the context in which we're operating at a time when our forces have been reformatted for the counterinsurgency uh, operations and we're no longer structured to fight two major theater uh, uh, campaigns and one secondary campaign. Uh, and so we're predominantly focusing on the Indo-Pacific. It's a very unstable world. It's a world in transition. And it's a world that requires for us to rethink our alliances and make sure that our allies across uh, our democratic uh, system, both in Europe and Asia, contribute equitably uh, to the effort. In the same article for the National Review, you also argue that, I quote, for the first time in a century, the United States faces an adversary, China, whose economy, while nominally smaller than ours, when measured in purchasing power parity, is already bigger than America's. To put the scope of this challenge in perspective, in the two world wars of the 20th century, the United States never fought an adversary whose GDP was more than 40% of ours and whose manufacturing base surpassed ours. Will we see, against this background, further systemic decoupling between United States and China under Biden's administration? And if yes, in which concrete fields do you expect such decoupling? And what does this mean for Europe? Yeah, I can't speak, obviously, for the, for the Biden administration, what policy decisions they will make. Uh, but from my perspective, I don't see a path to victory in great power competition for the collective West if the current system uh, is maintained. 
you cannot uh, rely and depend on your principal adversary on some of the foundational supply chains that you need to run your economy uh, and even, even your military and expect to outcompete that, that adversary and win. Two points here. First of all, unlike in the Cold War, the United States, in my view, cannot contain China. It has to outcompete China. Uh, the Chinese are a completely different problem set. Uh, we look at China as both as a military and an economic problem set. I think increasingly some analysts also say an ideological problem set because the Chinese are offering what I called elsewhere uh, at their own ideological framing for governance. I called it the free market for unfree people. Uh, or as a colleague of mine recently laughed with me, uh, making the world safe for authoritarianism uh, as a flip side of what has been America's mission, making the world safe for democracy. I'm being a little bit uh, flippant about it, but uh, that those three dimensions are there. Uh, for the Europeans, China is seen as a strategic challenge, but also as a huge economic opportunity. And we, we don't have consensus across NATO, I would argue, on what the nature of the threat is when it comes to China. The European uh, industries are very deeply now invested in the Chinese market. And what the Chinese have done, which, is, which has been running in the face of all the theories of you know, export-driven modernization and how when uh, labor costs go up, there's the supply chains will diffuse further as Chinese middle class will rise, it will demand greater participation, it will liberalize, democratize. But to quote a famous politician in the US, China would become a responsible stakeholder in the international system. In my view, this is well absurd from, from, from the start. Historically, every country that rapidly industrializes, modernizes, becomes anything but more nationalistically assertive and the systemic foundations of that country uh, become stronger. So the expectations that the Chinese who are all of a sudden registering this way in the global market uh, would go in the direction of liberal democracy, in my view, was, was simply uh, irrational in, in terms of how we're looking at larger trends in, in history. <clears throat> Look, we, we found out in this pandemic uh, how dependent the West is on China for supply chains. 80% of our antibiotics are manufactured uh, in China, all the PPE equipment that we needed, the masks, for masks, for suits, for everything else. Uh, what we have done, which in my view, history will look back upon as one of the most bizarre developments when it comes to statecraft, uh, we have in effect, uh, I'll take it differently. During the Cold War, NATO had the so-called COCOM restrictions, coordinating committee restrictions on exports to the Soviet bloc. Uh, and the Allies would, for example, not sell to the Soviets uh, at some point even an Intel 186-based processor computer because that was dual-use technology. And this was based on a very fundamental understanding that design is not that complicated. The Russians did great math. You know, they could come up with all sorts of designs, but they lacked the technological base to make those designs a reality because our superiority in the West was the generational accumulation of quality of the labor force, of our processes, our alloys, our clean rooms, everything that we have done better than the Soviets could ever have done. So they could reverse engineer our, our systems, but they had to build them with their technology. If you look at what globalization has done, we have taken the jewels in the crown of our technology and handed it over to our anniversary with a political system that's antithetical to ours and with 1.4 billion people to boot. Whoever thought this was a good idea, whoever thought that bringing China into the World Trade Organization as a developing nation should really sit down and think long and hard about why these decisions were being made. 
Um, I'm not trying to be uncharitable here, but to me, globalization as it was executed, i.e. the Chinese pursued a mercantile policy, extorted Western companies uh, for, for proprietary information, for market access, while they were keeping radically centralized supply chain networks in China without allowing other participants to benefit from the theoretically you know, expected diffusion. All of that was essentially, in my view, greed masquerading as an ideology. We have allowed corporate interests uh, to, to uh, trump national security priorities. So here's where we are today. Uh, even when it comes to, to military supply chains, weapons, uh, and so forth, we now have systems where we have single points of failure that can stop the entire line, that can stop the entire chain. That, in my view, is unacceptable. So what I've been advocating, I've been criticizing globalization for the last 20 years. Uh, I thought initially we could have been you know, a bit more forgiving and expecting that globalization would deliver, but within the first decade, post-Cold War decade, it was clear what the Chinese were going to do and where they were going. We have opened our universities to, to graduate students from China in quantities that are mind boggling. I mean, 2019, before the pandemic hit, out of about a million foreign students in the US, we had 370,000 Chinese students, mostly in the STEM and, 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 and uh, science and technology programs. Uh, we were basically training their weapons designers. You know, The expectations that most of them uh, would then stay in the United States did not come true. Uh, so we have allowed China access to every level of our society, finance, our culture, our technology, our lab research, where the Chinese began commissioning, uh, commissioning uh, research directly. And I'm not speaking here for myself. Congressional Research Service published a study about two years ago. One in five American companies doing business in China has been extorted uh, for their intellectual property, which is really their treasure, which is what they have. Uh, that has to stop. If we, if we are to win, in my view, in this great power competition, we need to use the old Tennessee saying, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. So the first thing you need to do, you need to hard decouple the most critical supply chains and, and, and take the pain. It's going to be it's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. But the national security interest needs to take priority. Secondly, in the for the less critical supply chains, if we want to continue to leverage labor market uh, differential in terms of in terms of cost, uh, we should uh, diffuse our supply chain networks. We should create redundancies. There's a number of countries out there friendly to the United States that would welcome American investment. The Chinese have become very successful at creating this almost imperative of investing in China and competing in China. Uh, and I think that needs to be fundamentally rethought. Now, for this to work, we need consensus across the transatlantic community, because if the Americans do one thing and the Europeans continue to be doing what they've been doing, uh, then this will not work. The Chinese will be able to leverage one against the other. And I will conclude my answer on the following uh, uh, kind of uh, reminder. Uh, just uh, weeks before the Biden administration came into office, the European Union suddenly signed the uh, comprehensive agreement on investment with the Chinese that the EU has been had been negotiating at that time for seven years. And that was done with virtually no consultation with the American side, took us by surprise. And I think it was a huge political win for the Chinese driving a wedge between the United States and its European allies. In another recent article for the Wall Street Journal, you write that NATO is an alliance divided. You argue that Western European leaders see less threat from China and Russia than US and Eastern European ones do. 
Will we see further fragmentation lines between the member states of the European Union based on their relations with the United States? And will the relations with China or Russia be the main reason for uh, further conflicts among the transatlantic allies in the future? I certainly hope not. And I mean this sincerely. I'm a, I'm a committed transatlanticist. I believe the Alliance of Democracies has served uh, both Europe and the United States exceedingly well uh, during the Cold War and after the Cold War. So um, uh, I, I, I hope and pray that NATO will reconstitute itself, that will find the will to properly resource uh, its, its national defenses. Uh, what worries me is that um, we seem to have forgotten that Alliances at the core are about shared threats and shared interests. Values are an important additive. They provide the necessary glue. They bring us together. They allow us uh, to understand and communicate to our respective public opinions what it is that, that we're doing. But if the alliances don't agree on threats and don't share interests, then it's very hard to use values alone uh, and institutions alone to substitute for the lack of the core of what constitutes a successful alliance. And here's the situation. Since the end of the Cold War, I would argue there has been in Europe, what I call elsewhere, a regionalization of security optics in plain English. If you are in the Baltic state, if you are in Poland, if you're in Romania, you know, your principal concern is Russia because that's the neighborhood you live in. Nations live in neighborhood and where you sit defines to a large extent your security optics. Plus those countries have a very recent experience of Russian imperialism during the Soviet era. But when you start traveling West, things begin to change. Germany is no longer a flank, a flank country like it was during the Cold War. Uh, you know, in contrast to the Bonn Republic, the Berlin Republic is now much more Central European, much more nested within, within the European NATO and, and the European Union. And I would argue is much more bi-directional in terms of how it looks at different risks and priorities. And my, my sense is that uh, Germany is trying to uh, manage Russia rather than, than oppose Russia through you know, political and economic means. And here in Nord Stream 2, the Nord Stream 2 issue is a very burning issue when it comes to intra-European relations, because the, East, the Eastern flank countries see this as a direct threat to their security. Uh, and, and Germany uh, you know, looks at it differently, looks at it as, a, as an economic pro uh, project first and foremost. Then when you get to France, France is looking much more south when it comes to its geostrategic interests. Uh, Europe's border, uh, southern border is no longer in the Med, it's in Africa, it's deep into the Sahel and beyond. And the French are looking at their political and economic interests uh, in the southern direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm making these brief points to, to indicate that we seem to find it very hard to agree on the nature of the threats and on the nature of the interests that the alliance should have. Again, I, I am separating this from the rhetoric because in, in various statements that you hear after NATO summits, like the recent NATO summit that we had, you know, we continue to underline and underscore uh, the unit, unity of the alliance, the unity of purpose, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the story of the rearmament, for example, in NATO, you know, we had the Wales Pledge, I wrote about it elsewhere, the Wales Pledge of 2014 of 2% of GDP on defense uh, by 2024. Well, that's not happening. It hasn't happened. We've been, we've been, you know, flogging this pony, so to speak, for so long. And we're looking at some countries saying, well, maybe by 2031, uh, we will get to 1.5%. Or some countries saying, well, maybe if we spend the money this way, we will get closer to it. The problem is I've argued from the start that the 2% requirement is a lark. 
that it's actually a political boondoggle because what really matters for NATO is not how much money you spend, but what you spend that money on. If you spend most of your defense budget on military personnel and not on acquisition or research development or operations and maintenance, you know, what are you really buying with that money? What capabilities are you buying? And here's the key problem. Uh, for the United States to continue to uh, be the pillar of deterrence in Europe and continue to defend Europe, we need to be able to work with the European allies, with their militaries. We need to exercise with their militaries. We, we just finished a very successful Defender 21 exercise. Uh, but we need to have capabilities in Europe that we can plug into our operational plan. And if we don't have those, and if there's a crisis in the Indo-Pacific that will pull American resources you know, in that direction, leaving strategic enablers, obviously, and, and, and some uh, core elements and the, and the strategic nuclear deterrent, but, but in effect, without the Europeans accepting the responsibility for burden transferring, not burden sharing, burden transferring in some key areas of military capabilities, Putin will be, in my view, tempted to blackmail, extort the Europeans or worse. And then we all lose as the entire alliance. So we need to get consensus on the fact that Russia is a, a military threat, so long as Europe does not rearm itself. Plain English, pure and simple. And the second key problem that's going to continue to, to create friction is consensus on China. China is a power in Europe, uh, even though it's not a European power. And, and getting NATO, if you look at the work on the reflection group, for example, getting NATO as close as possible to agreeing on how we approach China will be critical, case in point. Uh, if, we, if the Europeans continue to allow the Chinese to acquire naval facilities in Europe, and we have cases of 100% ownership, we have cases of 70% ownership, there's now a discussion of, of China buying up uh, uh, a, a large portion of a, a major hub in, in, in Hamburg, then this impacts military mobility. That impacts the ability of the United States to exercise reinforcing Europe, and on and on and on. Same thing goes for rail access, uh, you know, highway access, the, the uh, making sure that these bridges that we have are rated to carry the trailers with tanks and all, all of that requires spending that is substantive. And to me, talking about a two percentage point, one percentage point, three percentage point just skirts the issue and becomes a political football that we've been playing for the last, you know, a decade plus. During the June NATO summit, uh, the Allies discussed how to manage these future threats. Um, you elaborated on how to deal with China and Russia, how to develop more effective burden sharing approach, and announced also the decision to develop uh, a new strategic concept, which should replace the current uh, 2010 document uh, in time for the next summit in 2022. Which are the main topics, the main future threats you uh, foresee for this uh, upcoming document, for this strategic uh, concept, and how can uh, the relations between America and Europe imp improve uh, in, during this time? What needs to be done on this side of the Atlantic? Well, I've already underscored what I think is the most important thing, is that the Europeans, that NATO agrees uh, I would recommend that NATO drops the 2% requirement and instead agrees on requiring of each allied member to provide specific uh, military capabilities on specific timelines when that force needs to be fielded. Uh, and that those capabilities are then exercised within the larger operational plan that, that NATO, NATO has. 
because that is what really sends a deterrent message to any adversary uh, that NATO has the forces it needs to have in the event you know, deterrence fails and we move into a kinetic phase and we can respond in the crisis, but most of all, we can prevent crisis. So what this means in plain English, look, Europe is a very affluent continent right now. And most of the countries in Europe are, are very highly successful. The European Union as a whole and European NATO has ample resources uh, to, to invest in military capabilities. It's just, it has not been a political priority. That brings me back to the argument, if it's not a political priority, why is that so? Because there's no threat perception and there's no national interest believed to be tied to that. Otherwise the money would be there. Uh, in one of my pieces, I quoted a European, a senior European colleague who said, you know, the money is here. It's the politics of it that are difficult. And here's the critical uh, next year for me. If you look at it, uh, during the Trump uh, era, Trump, uh, President Trump was a convenient excuse to some extent because of how he interacted with, with the European allies, because, you know, various missteps and, and the kind of language that was used, the tonality of it, uh, doing something, at least that was the European argument, that the Trump administration was asking was politically toxic in their domestic environment because that would have been giving in to Trump. Well, that ship has sailed. We have a very pro-transatlanticist, pro-European Biden administration in place. President Biden spoke about NATO as a sacred trust, about Article 5 as being central to all of this. This is, as we say, the time to show me the money, because the excuse that there's a political price to be paid, uh, that has evaporated. Uh, but if we go to business as usual, that is, we will have statements, assertions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera then uh, then uh, I think the consequences for the alliance will be dire. Uh, highly bureaucratized stru structured organizations like NATO, they don't disappear overnight. What happens to them is that they become hollowed out and less and less relevant and less and less capable to perform their primary mission. And I would argue that NATO, if it doesn't re rearm and restore its, its credibility in terms of military power, is at risk of trailing in that direction, that we will have continued summits, new strategic concepts, statements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that its relevance for security will become less and less and countries will default to bilateral relations. And I think we'll all be worse for it if that happens. And as for strategic concept, look, we should have a clear understanding and a clear statement that in the event we are pulled into the Pacific theater, that the Europeans have the capabilities to stand their ground and to ensure that deterrence hold. Uh, and if we don't have that clear consensus, that we're looking at China and Russia as both, not just you know, economic challenges, uh, meaning China, but China also having a military capability. Let's remember, People's Liberation Army Navy is operating in the Med. It's been allowed into the Baltic. It's punching through the high north and the Arctic. They're building 35,000 ton nuclear-powered icebreakers. They're building an aircraft carrier fleet. This is a, a country that has aspirations to operate in blue water areas and to actually get to Europe, if you will, from different directions. One is the transnational, transcontinental Belt and Road and New Silk Initiative supply chain. And, and they're determined to defend it. I have no doubt about it because that that makes them less dependent on the sea lanes of communication. Right now, about 75% of all the of trade that comes into Europe and leaves Europe comes through the Atlantic. 
And the reason we've had this globalization, by the way, is because the US Navy has guaranteed freedom of navigation. The sea lanes of communication is what facilitates international trade. These are public goods, if you will, uh, that, that America has been providing in addition to our satellite networks and, and, and the rest of it. I think the Chinese are trying to reverse the, the you know, almost half a century old domain supremacy when it comes to maritime versus land. Uh, because if you look at the rise of the West globally, uh, that has been based largely on naval power. It was the ocean going countries, the countries that had access to the world ocean that have been able to set the rules of the international system to modernize rapidly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if the Chinese can build a supply chain network across Eurasia, keep it competitive, defend and protect it, they, they do not have to dominate the world ocean right away. All they have to do is block the Americans in the Western Pacific and ensure that they can have uh, access to, to uh, the European market. But what that would do, right now Europe is a, is a gateway for the transatlantic community into, into Eurasia. If the Chinese flip it, if they complete what I call this grand inversion, then Europe will become the tail end of the Ch Chinese supply network. And, and last, last very important point, I think the Europeans are committing ex exactly the same mistake that the Americans have by manufacturing their most advanced technologically uh, you know, needed and, and forward-looking products in China, because that accomplishes a, a massive transfer of technology, of knowledge. Uh, and if the Chinese can then use this to innovate, then we will all be losing in this grand strategic competition. A final a little bit provocative question on my side, as I'm really interested in your personal view. Um, given that uh, global power competition is shifting towards Asia, with the Indo-Pacific being the epicenter of uh, the main geopolitical and geoeconomic developments in this decade, uh, do you think that Europe might turn into a geopolitical backyard of uh, international relations? And a second question on my side, um, would we witness a Cold War um, II uh, scenario? Yeah, you know, I think Europe is still in, in many areas too modern, too, too successful, too rich, with all the structural problems that, that, that we have uh, to become a backyard or backwater any anytime soon. What we need to recognize that with the departure of the Brits from the European Union, the EU is a much more continental uh, structure than it was since ever, ever since the, the, the early 70s when the Brits were coming in. Uh, and it's also a much more German European Union. If you look at the power balances, the Brits were the second largest economy in Europe. So I, I would speculate that we're going to look at, on the one hand, an attempt to federalize Europe to a greater extent that we have seen. Uh, and you've seen this with the decision to assume common debt, the kind of European ha Hamiltonian uh, moment, uh, but also to transfer ever more sovereignty from national capitals into Brussels and into large structures. Counter that, you have pressure from different countries that see Europe largely as it is, you know, not a quasi-nation state, but still as, a, as an institutionally based uh, international organization, even as Europe has... Uh, Europeans bled a lot of their sovereignty, like border controls and all of that into, into the largest structure. But COVID exposed something very important. If you look at how, how initially vaccinations were to be purchased collectively and then what happened 
with nations defaulting to their own national policymaking processes and, and whatnot. Um, what I fear is that Europe will fragment uh, rather than, than federalize in a sense that these different security optics, different economic interests uh, will pull and push in different directions, uh, making any sort of semblance of a, of a coherent stance uh, impossible to achieve. Uh, you see some of this when you hear, uh, you know, the talk about strategic autonomy or, uh, you know, some decisions that are being made on weapons acquisitions or, or the, the kind of contracts that are going, going out. Um, my sense is that the European business community is overwhelmingly committed to the, to the Asian market, to the Chinese market. And if you look at the model, you know, this is the largest German trading partner right now, I believe, uh, is China. If, if you look at the model that, that Europe has developed, there's this kind of social compact deal, you need to accumulate, continue accumulating surpluses from trade. Uh, you know, if you don't want to excessively, I mean, already high levels of taxation in Europe, but if you don't want to go even beyond that to maintain that transfer payment network that has uh, served Europe relatively well over, over, over the years. Europe has some very serious issues when it comes to population trends. You know, fertility rates in Europe are about 1.7 now uh, per, per couple. Um, this, is, this is, of course, different in different countries. So the question of immigration, if, if you are to, to talk about, about the economic viability going forward. Interestingly enough, China has a very similar problem. Chinese fertility rates are about 1.7 there as well in part because of the one-child policy that the Chinese have abandoned since, but the longer-term implications are that probably I've seen some assessment by 2050, one working Chinese will be supporting four retirees. I mean, so China is not all roses. The Chinese are not 10 feet tall, you know, that they that they are taking over the world and whatnot. China has a lot of structural problems um, and, and, and internal tensions. And I think China also, by the way, it's been practicing politics of late under Xi, has been losing this image of a peacefully rising, you know, uh, economic power. But it's now being seen ever more as an assertive imperial state that's uh, beginning to push people around. And it's very interesting to see, especially how this plays itself in Europe, but also how it plays itself in Africa. This was the fourth episode of the AAS podcast special on US-Europe relations. And you listen to Andrew Michter, Dean of the College of International and Security Studies at Marshall Center. Thank you very much, Andrew, for participating in our podcast special and for your excellent insights. Jelena, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>